Please open your Bibles this morning to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we're learning of the ministry of glory, the stewardship that God has given, the Father has given his son of glory, and how today we're talking about how that's delegated, how that's been parlayed from Christ and his relationship to God the Father to us, and our relationship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. We're very Trinitarian today. Do you understand what we mean by Trinitarian? We believe in one God. We are monotheists. We will be accused of being polytheists, but we believe in one God. But that God has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the historic Christian confession has never shied away from Jesus Christ being of the same essence as his Father. That the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, but the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are God, one God in three persons. And sometimes I think uh, we, we might miss some balance on that doctrine, like we try to reason it out in our heads. And so if you try to reason too much about it, what you end up with is some cases you get a little bit more uh, on the side of he's one. So God is one, so he has three ways he shows himself. And then you end up with three kind of faces of God, three manifestations or three modes of the one God. And that's called modalism. And it's an ancient heresy. And we learn to say, no, Jesus is actually talking to a different person when he prays to the Father. So you can't be modalist. You can't do this uh, oneness. uh, the The one name of the Father, Son, and Spirit means there's only one person. No, it's three persons, but one God. The other side is to go too far to the threeness. And you start to think, do we have three gods? And that's called tritheism. We don't believe in tritheism. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons. And Trinity is a shorthand way of saying what the word actually is. It's triunity. It's three in oneness. And nobody has ever experienced or can really conceive of what that is like to be, what what it's like to be that one person or one God in three persons, one being who is existing eternally in three persons, we cannot understand what that's like. God is wholly other. But in this passage and in your spiritual life and central to your life is that there is a relationship between God the Father and his son, his eternally pre-existing son who was born. We celebrate at Christmas. He died and went to the tomb, rose from the dead. And on the third day, we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. They call it Easter. The the, the, the person of Christ has always existed as the Son of God, and he became one of us. Now, the Father didn't become one of us, and the Holy Spirit didn't become a human being, but the Lord Jesus did. See, this is central Christian doctrine. This is what we believe. And today, that very important theological understanding is going to feed us in terms of our day-to-day decisions our personal interactions, the things that you and I choose to do and say and to think. And we're studying in this study Christian ownership or biblical ownership or radical stewardship. We're learning that everything we have has been given to us from God and he has an intention. He has a right answer for what we would do with it. Everything about us, our time, our energy, our personal relationships as we've seen. And so this really gets to the very crux of the matter. Your spiritual life, your personal walk with God, your everything is a stewardship that God has delegated to you. Not too long from now, we'll talk about how we as a church family together have a corporate stewardship of this representation of the gospel and and the coming kingdom in this church family, we represent all that God has promised, and, we, and we, we celebrate all that God has already done. And we do that in everything we do, how we cut the grass, 
how we provide a place to, to, to serve, everything we do, it's part of that stewardship. But today, I want to get to the very center of your spiritual walk with God, your relationship to God the Father, and how Jesus modeled it for us, and how he is our example, our exemplar, our example that he provided, and the Father is the one that we're personally dealing with in the sense of this delegated responsibility. We're in the same train with Jesus because we call God our Heavenly Father. So in John chapter 17, if you want to look at it, it says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, this is the third time we've looked at this concept together. And what I would usually do is read the passage in its entirety and then pick it apart in terms of showing you its pieces and how they interrelate. But let's get to this. What is going on in this request? I want you to imagine being a child of a father who's wealthy, who has everything to give, and you are his kid, and you say to your dad, give me some of that. Think about it. That's a wonderful thing to have, to have a father that has it all. It's wonderful to have a relationship where you could actually talk to him and say, let's have it. But there is a stinker in this story unless we hear how Jesus says it. Give me, for me, is not what he's saying. Not really. He's saying, give me for you. You've got stuff you're doing. Let me have a piece of it. That's what he's saying. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son and finish the sentence that the Son may glorify you. If you don't pass it to me, I can't pass it to you. That's what he's saying. Throw me the ball. I'll throw it back. That's the, that's the message. And when you see this and the topic is glory, well, what would that include? Anything, anything that would bring glory, anything that exalts, anything. So what in your life is glory? Your personal relationships, your time, your skills, everything. Now let's illustrate it. You have God the Father. I don't generally draw pictures of God. I've read the Bible, not supposed to do that not supposed to draw pictures of God, so I'll name him. He's God the Father. And you have this other person in the picture, God the Son. Now he says, it says, and John says, let me show you, Jesus. And in Greek, that's Jesus, Jesus, because they don't have a, a Y in Greek. So they, yeah, they put, the, and so in Hebrew, it would be Yeshua. And that's his name. And we can say Jesus spoke these things. And lifting up his, he- his eyes to heaven, he spoke all the things of John chapters 13 through 17. Well, all, 13 through 16. And we all know that, that this passage is the upper room discourse. This is the seed material that is going to feed all the epistles. It's the seed doctrine from the preceptor, the author of our faith. And the, the disciples and apostles that wrote later are writing for him as, as what he taught them. He spoke these things. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hours come glorify your son. So the son and the father in in view. And so you see how this devastates the idea that God is one person with two ways he presents himself to us. That modalistic idea, the masks, that sometimes he shows up as the father. But then he came to earth in the incarnation as Jesus. And then when Jesus left, he came down as the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a neat and clever thought, but it just isn't biblical. Jesus isn't talking to himself. Isn't that awesome? The reason we're Trinitarian is because we're Johannine. We believe what John wrote. And the reason we care what John wrote, that's a big word, is it Johannine? We're we're with John, the apostle. The reason we even care at all what this guy, uh, Johann in 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 Greek, Johannes, the reason we care what John said is because he tells us he comes from Jesus. And Jesus testifies to the apostles, and we know that, that they're coming from him. They have nothing to say except what Jesus gave them. So, so what I'm saying is that this is um, biblical. This is, if you're biblical, you're apostolic. If you're apostolic, in other words, you listen to the apostles, then you have to be Trinitarian. You have to be. 
And that's really important. Now, if you don't want to be Trinitarian, you want to reason, and I know better than what the Bible says, I mean, that's how people do it. So it's one or the other. We're biblical, so Trinitarian, or we're not Trinitarian, so not biblical. And I just I want you to get that, that we have three persons and one God, and we worship God, not, uh, not uh, polytheism, but triunity. So we have God the Son speaking to God the Father, and what does he ask for? Father, glorify the Son. So what direction is that? That's from the Father to, your son, to the Son, obviously. So he asks for glory. I found a picture of an arrow that would do this for my picture. So there it is. God, Father, glorify me. And so that's the request. But that's not the whole picture. But that's what we do sometimes in our prayers, isn't it? How many prayers are give me? As we grow spiritually, maybe we'll stop, you know, get a little bit of, a little bit of spiritual growth, a little few rings on your spiritual tree, right? And you kind of grow a little bit. And then you're like, oh, it's not about me. I shouldn't ask. But then you read the Bible some more and you're like, wait a second, that's bad reasoning. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. We're supposed to be asking. We're supposed to be asking for great things. And so then maybe a little bit more development, a little more maturity. And you're like, well, well, if God's glorified and awesome, then we should be glorified and awesome. And that's where TV is. That's where they stop. That you're supposed to have the health and the wealth if you have the Christ. And still no. Still, no, you're not going to be rich in this life. Jesus said that those who want to, or sorry, Paul said for Jesus, those who want to get rich in this life pierce themselves through with many griefs. I mean, who wants to do that? You know, self, self pin cushioning. That's just stupid. I'm sorry, that's, 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 that's plain talk <laughs> here in the country <laughs> church. The, the idea of just for me doesn't get there. But see, we're not done. Glorify the Son because I have something that I want to do so that the Son may glorify you. It's reciprocal. It's an engine. It turns. Have you seen the little silly uh, commercial about the, the guy that, uh, that drops his toast on the, on the floor and always lands butter side down because of the laws of physics? Always butter side down. And then his cat walks by and he said, the cat always lands foot, you know, on his feet, Always. So then he tapes a piece of buttered toast to the cat and it starts to spin because neither side can, it, and he sticks it in the, he, he sticks it in his, um, in his dryer and it powers the whole village uh, <laughs> with this dynamo. Okay, that's a ridiculous illustration. But, but the idea is that you have this reciprocation that is meant to kick off and run. When you start your car, the engine is as it rests and then it starts and all that is necessary for starting gets the engine running, but it reciprocates. This illustration still works today. I pray that it will work in perpetuity because the idea of not having a reciprocating gasoline engine is, you know, the, 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 the alternatives are really not desirable. Um, and, and if you want to go very far in the cold. But anyway, the, the engine spins. The Lord starts this off and says, do this, and it's, it's reciprocal. And so think about what you feed into that, which you could call glory. Think about what feeds into that. Give me, what do you want? You want friends? Do you want friends? What are you going to do with them? Well, I'm going to have them. We're going to hang. We're going to talk to each other and, and, and be known and know each other and enjoy time together. We're going to have experiences. That's not really what you want to do with your friends. That's not, I mean, th those are fine, but those aren't the goal. See what I mean? This, this will change your whole world because the main relationship is the main relationship. Uh, don't lose your first love. You love God first. And so what are your friends for? They're for God. They're for God. And so you're going to take them to God. Well, uh, maybe they won't be my friends. Hey, maybe they'll go to heaven and not the lake of fire. That, and this is exactly what Jesus is about to say. It's what he did. What other things do you want? What, what do you want? You know what I want? I want a building, a building where we can all um, serve together and where people don't have to wheelchair, where we lift you in the wheelchair up over those steps outside and then up into this room. And then we lift you back down and then lift you back down and then roll you down probably backwards because of that slope right there and then lift you up into the other thing and then lift you down. I'd rather have a place that we could actually have people that are wheelchair bound just come and, and, and worship together.
Wouldn't you like that? But what's that for? Oh, it's like I have a bunch of wheelchair people. No. It's not about us. It's not about getting what we want. It's about God getting what he wants. So God, give us an opportunity to do what, what you want us to do for you. That's the way to think about it. I want money. Oh, that's the big one. We want money. Well, no, we don't. Those other people want money. We're, we heard. We don't want to pierce ourselves through with many griefs. Hey, you want stability. You want to be able to pay your bills. You want to live a certain way. You want to take care of the family. You need resources. But what is it for? Well, so I can, you know, be comfortable so that we don't have to stress. That's not a good enough goal. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. And anything, listen, anything that doesn't fit into this paradigm, this reciprocation with God, you're, you're wasting it. You're wasting the, the blessing. I believe that when you give what God has given you to him, that he will backfill you so that you can do that some more. And I experience, and, and I, I pray that you do too. I know a lot of you, if not all of you, know this from experience. You're not wasting something on, well, I just got to worship God. Your life is worship, and you're, and you're participating with your Father. That's the way this life works, according to Jesus and what he's after. And it doesn't just, it's not for this life either, it's forever. He says in verse 2, even as you gave him, even Father, as you gave him the Son authority over all flesh, that to, whom, to all whom you gave, have given him, he may give eternal life. Now see, this is the way he explains that he's already done it. You gave people to me, and I gave them eternal life. And that introduces a riddle. How does that fit this pattern? The Father gave all flesh that he gave to the Son. You gave them to me, that all that you gave me, I gave gave them eternal life. How does that fit the pattern? How does that fit that reciprocation? Verse three explains it. This is eternal life. They may know you. So I took them to you. I showed them you. I glorified you. See how taking your friends to, to the father is to glorify the father in their eyes. The father gave them to the son. That glorifies the son. You gave me some people, but I gave them to you. And that is ministry. This is the gospel ministry. You have God the Father, God the Son, and in this case, you gave him what? Authority. You gave him authority. That is, that's this. It's the same step. The, the authority is glory. Authority is an exaltation. It is you have more responsibility. And did you know that everything that you have a decision to make, everything you have authority over is Something that God has delegated to you? Did you know the capacity to make decisions? This We call it your volition. Your ability to choose is a sacred delegation that God's given you. And there's a right way to use it. When we use our volition in a wrong way, do you know what we call it? Sin. That's what sin is. It's making a choice that you shouldn't make. But that would mean that there's somebody to decide whether it's right or wrong. That's the deal. That's the world we live in. We don't decide what the morality is. We decide if we'll conform to it. We don't decide whether righteousness, what righteousness is. We have a God from whom righteousness exudes, from it, it flows from his character. It's part of his very essential nature. And so it's not our nature, it's God's nature. And when we make a decision, it either conforms to God's righteousness or it doesn't. You see what I mean? I mean, that, that's this capacity to make decisions. So God the Father has this authority that he's delegated to the Son. And that is about people. He says, all those, you gave him authority over all flesh. He ain't talking about cows. He's talking about humans. It's people. You know, those problem manufacturing devices in your life. It's, the problems are people problems. We like to joke about church. And, you know, if you find the perfect church, don't go there because you won't fit in. Like, you know, if, if, um, if, if the, we could solve all the problems with church, just get rid of everybody, and then there wouldn't be more problems. And uh, That's true. People are problem manufacturing devices. People can cause you problems in ways you haven't even thought about yet. So you almost want to stay home where there's no people, but then you're lonely and want to meet some people. And that's not what we're designed for. You've got to understand that the mission is people. It's not social structures. There are decisions we need to make that will affect large groups of people like elections and these things, 
But that's not our mission. It's a side thing. We have to do it, but it's not our mission. We can make decisions about the mission. Like, should we have equal access in the schools and these kinds of things? So you have God the Father delegating authority to God the Son, and that is to glorify the Son. It is delegation. I mean, it is glorifying that he delegates, that he passes the authority down. We don't ever usurp and assume an authority or a prerogative he hasn't given us. That's Satan's move. We don't do that. But when he has delegated something, honor him for it and then honor him with it. Thank you for the power to make this choice. And now, Father, for your glory, I do make this choice. And that's the idea of this reciprocation. So God delegates the authority. That is a glory that he does that. And in this case, it's toward people. And then Jesus, in that reciprocal step, gives them eternal life, which is to know the Father. And that brings glory to the Father. And that's the way it works. This is the paradigm of gospel ministry. This is why he says in verse 4, as we'll see, I, I gave, I've done the, the work you sent me to do. Now, in the middle, in the eye of this reciprocation, for both directions, it's people, the way Jesus sets it up. And then he's going to launch for the rest of his prayer about the people. And he even prays for you and me, those who believe in you from their word, from the disciples' word. That's what we're reading John right now. That's us. He, he includes you in the prayer. Jesus prays for you in the Bible. Did you know that? Verse 20, I did not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus through the word of John? Do you believe that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Do you believe that? He's talking about you. That's magnificent. If you think about it, it's a pretty old document. God the Son reciprocates with the Father in how he deals with the people the Father has given him. Now, I want to talk about scale of values. If you like to fish, you might value your bass boat over people. If you like to golf, you might value your tea time and your clubs over people. There, there are passions that we have in life that just, we just enjoy, and we might get fixated on these things and value those things over people. But if we think about it, and that's the key to the Bible is thinking. If you think about it, you know better. It doesn't matter if I fish or if I golf compared to the value of people and why. Why are people of such a high value? Well, there are a couple of things we can imagine. Genesis 1, they're made in God's image. So God has value that he's assigned to people because he created them with that inherent value. Who, is, who sets the value? God. Well, I don't value him that much. Well, you're not God. Get with him. So we, we need to adjust. What's another reason people have value? Perpetuity. The gold is going to melt. Second Peter 3, all the elements are going to burn with intense heat. Anything that you can touch is going away. It is all kindling. Not just this old meeting house. <laughs> it's, all, it's all kindling. Everything you can touch. My new car, kindling. That doesn't combust. With the kind of heat we're talking about, it melts. It, it will go away. People don't. People are perpetual. People are eternal. And when I say eternal, I mean never ending. But wait, 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 wait. No, no. If I'm a believer, I get eternal life. That's John 3.16. But what about unbelievers? Most of the humans, they continue in perpetuity. It's called the resurrection unto death, and they spend eternity separated from God in eternal torment. They are perpetual. They don't have eternal life in the sense of God's life and a life with God, but to know Jesus Christ and the, the Father. They don't know that. They don't have that life, but they are experiencing perpetuity forever and ever and ever. See, find something else that lasts that long. The Word of God will abide forever. Not one stroke of the pen will pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. God's promises are forever. He says he's going to give Abraham and his kids the land forever and ever and ever. And that hadn't happened yet, right? These are forever things and people. 
They're perpetual. The word of God, the promises of God, and the people that God has made, the human beings in your life. And so we really have to start valuing them at the level that God assigns because they're the mission. And if we love God, then we're going to be about his work. And if we're about his work, it's going to be people. And that doesn't mean that you're getting your satisfaction from how people approve of you. It doesn't mean that if I get more people, that I'm, I'm fine. And if I don't have people, I'm, uh, that it's about your feelings about yourself. That's what we do with people. That's not the mission. The mission is that people come to know the Father through the Son. And how can you be part of that mission? In verse 4, we have to finish the paragraph. He says, I glorified you on the earth. See, I glorified you, like he just said, on the earth. Having accomplished the work which you've given to me to do, to reveal the Father. He did. He revealed the Father. He said, the words I'm saying aren't my own words, but the Father who sent me. This is the the consistent appeal Jesus makes. It's not his ideas. These are the works of the Father. In fact, the Spirit is the one empowering him, the third person. The Father's Holy Spirit is empowering the Son. He's also called the Spirit of Christ. He's empowering him to do the works that he does that are revealing that the kingdom is among you when he offers them the kingdom throughout the Gospels. He revealed the Father. And now here's the request. I've done the reciprocation, my step, and now glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I want you to see something on terms of trajectory and what you're after. Do you have any dreams, visions, aspirations, goals, desires? I love that talk. I love to talk about setting a goal and then then making no excuses, no equivocations, no obstacles, set aside everything and get to that goal. I love that. I've lived that in various aspects of my life. And, and I, I, I want to tell you that there's a bigger goal than anything you could ever imagine. And Jesus says it. I want glory with you. I want to be with you in, in glory. It's the highest. It's the greatest. It's the best. It's a personal relationship with God the Father. And you're supposed to be growing in it now. And so let's get to it. Last time we looked at the construction project that Paul says he's building with with other ministers of the gospel, like Apollos, and we looked in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at this building project where the evaluation of God on how you built will be fire testing the works that you used to build. Now remember what we said, I hope you can remember, in context, they're dividing, the Corinthians are dividing over who is the speaker they like to listen to. And Paul is saying, that's not the thing. We're nothing. We're just workers for God. It's really God doing the work. I I planted Paulus water, but God was causing the growth, that kind of idea. That's the topic in the passage. But what's amazing, what jumps out at us in this passage is that the works Paul says he did have eternal value, that he gets some of that back. He gets the value of his work and he gets to have it for him as the owner of it. Now, why do you get stuff? Why does God give you anything in John 17? So you have something to give him. What are we going to do with our crowns that God gives us of glory and reward when we are judged? We're going to throw them at our Savior's feet and glorify him with. When it's time to throw the crowns, you want to have one. You want to have something to to, to throw. Everyone charge your glasses. Oh, I don't have anything in my glass. Well, you can't toast. You can't be part of this. No celebration for you. When it's time to honor God, you want to have something to honor him with. That's the idea. And that, see, we don't think of our stuff, of our money, of our, of our homes, of our children, of their education. We don't think of our lives like that. That it's, it's, it's all delegated responsibility that I need to honor him with and give to him. And you need to ask him, God, how does this part of my life how can I glorify you with it? How is this for you? How is this about you? And I'm not talking about uh, you have to like live in the, in the old meeting house. In fact, you can't. Nobody lives here but the mice. <laughs> but we've tried to make sure that they don't live. And that's another story. But the, but the point is you can't live in the building. You can't be here all the time. You have to serve, you have to, do, you have to live your life, but you're living it for him. You come here for equipping so that you can live your life for him as we're describing. In 1 Corinthians chapter three though, it's very interesting. Paul is building with a view to getting back what he built, what he, what he invested. His time, his energy, his life, his sore bunions on his sandaled feet, his giant calf muscles from climbing all those hills and all the Mediterranean world as he's going through the entire, all his missionary journeys. 
This has an, an eternal value that he gets back. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Again, there's a lot he doesn't say about construction here. Who's the architect? Well, the foundation's Christ. We start with Christ. We're building into people's lives. We're building the body of Christ. You start with the gospel of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What do you do? And what do you do about that? You trust in him. It's simple childlike faith. That's the gospel. But we're building. We're building this body. And these individual believers have to grow and they become builders. And this thing builds itself up, and that's the body of Christ. And he's in this construction project. He doesn't talk about a lot of the details we might ask, but one thing you're sure of, if you use the wrong construction materials, you don't get to have a benefit because it burns up. If you use the right construction materials, you get all that material back in wealth. So what are the materials? That's the question to ask in the passage. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is really complicated, isn't it? It's not. It's not. This is like the kids in the engineering, you know, exploration class build a bridge and then you put weight to, to test it. And how did their engineering design and then practice work? And, and uh, when, how, who won the bridge contest? Who built the fire the best so that when you finally get your one match or better use some sort of magnesium or flint and steel, get some spark going, get that fire going, who burns the string the first? That's a test. Who does the work the best? Who's got the best bridge? Who's got the best fire? Who's got the best materials? Who's using the right materials in construction? This is interesting. He doesn't say that I'm supposed to go look at your materials and say, you're not building with God's materials. Now, as brother loves you, comes alongside you, maybe there's an opportunity to give you some encouragement about that, right? What about the idea that those Christians that don't think they're building at all? Build? I want to make mud pies. Well, babies do. But in this case, adults build. There's an adult work that God's called us all to do. You're all part of it doesn't mean pastor. You don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to be an apostolic emissary, or you don't have to be an Apollos. You have to do what God has put in front of you in terms of building the body of Christ in your giftedness. Grow and serve where you are and what you can. And there's something for you in what you do. And it may be that your labor at work is feeding the gospel ministry financially to go, and you might have a gift of giving, that that's the specific way we all do this. We're all giving in order to advance and proclaim and project the gospel. We're all doing this. But some people are gifted to do it. It's a spiritual gift. But whatever it is, it's not, it's not for me to tell you what the thing is you're doing to do this. It's for me to say this is our goal. This is what we're supposed to all agree with Paul that we're working on. And why do I care? Why do I care about you being in the work? Well, because I can get a big building. We can all build a big, a big group. We can, better not be. That's, that's called the church growth movement. Not my objective. What am I thinking? If I'm thinking rightly, what am I thinking? I'm thinking, I don't want you to have a wasted life. I love you. I want to see you have a good outcome. I want to see that you get that recompense that God wants to give you. And why do I, why do I care about you? Oh, because I'm I'm needy. I need people to care about me, so I know that I got to care about them. Right? I'm a needy person, so you're, you know, maybe you'll fulfill that need in me. You better not be. That sounds like pastor burnout in six months, right? No, I'm needy for God. I better get my satisfaction in, in my walk with him for those types of needs. So why do I care about what happens to you? Do you care about what happens to each other or to me? I'm not being needy when I ask it. Because the reason is because I love God. The reason is because he's told me that's the mission. The reason is back here in this picture. In the middle of that reciprocation, the way God has loved the Son is with people. The way the Son loves the Father is with people. It's the mission. 
God first, not, not people first, God first. And then if you're God first, it's got to be. Regard, without regard to self, it has to be, what does God want for the people? What does God want for this person in this instance? And how am I supposed to be part of that? And that's John 13, that you love one another as I've loved you. This is magnificent. And it's so clarifying. It's so simple. Oh, this is simple. My life is to please God and how I take care of people about making disciples in the gospel. That's it. And that is glory. That is eternal glory. That is the building that God has us building. So we close. And those of you who are here a lot know that I mean that eventually. Eventually we'll close on 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you talk about 1 Corinthians 3 and the gold, silver, precious stones, you really have to talk about 2 Corinthians 5 and the judgment seat of Christ. And I put it in Greek because I translate it into English. And some of the time, I think there might be something that is interesting or salient, something that kind of pops out in terms of the detail of the idiom. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And some of you are like, but you always put that Greek up there because I'm always translating it. So it isn't always going to be an edifying thing that we, we, we went back to the Greek, but sometimes it is. And this is such a central passage. I wanted you to see, this is what it looks like in Greek, um, what Paul wrote. He wrote, Diokai, Philotimumetha, Eta, Endemuntes, Eta, Ekdemuntes, see, Endemuntes, Ekdemuntes, Euarastoi, Auto, Enai. And what that says is, therefore, also, we have the love of honor which is a Greek idiom that means we have as our ambition with a view towards service. That's a paraphrase of what this word is doing, philo to meomai. To meomai is to honor and to philos is love. It's the love of honor is the, is the etymological origin of this word. And my Bible translates it, have as our ambition. And I like that because the way this is used in the period in which Paul wrote, this word is someone with ambition to gain favor with the community for your public service. There's a word for that. The ambition to gain favor in the community for public service. That's this word, the love of honor. But in this case, it's not that the community would honor us. That's, you've got your reward in full, Jesus says. You've got your reward in full, and that would make you a fool. <laughs> Therefore, we also have as our ambition with a view towards service Eta ek demuntes, or, or eta endemuntes, whether in the house or whether out of the house. In and ek. In is in the house, ek is out of the house. That's all it means. At home or whether absent. What's he talking about in context? I've just dropped you in to the text with no context. He's talking about how temporary this life is and how long eternity is. In this passage, he's talking about how this body is an earthly tent and it's going to perish. But we're going to get a heavenly tent from, from heaven in our resurrection body. That's the topic. And so the idea of this life is all there is, he's completely slaughtering that idea for the Corinthians. That you and I need to think about this life is the first phase of my eternal life, and, and, that, and the eternal life is the bigger thing, and this life sets us up for that. That's the way you think about it. And that's why Paul can say, I always reference this, I want to, I want to read it. It's an amazing uh, passage when I first worked through this in cemetery, seminary. Girls eat popcorn. Okay, he says, he says in Philippians 1, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21, life verse. Hope you, hopefully that's a life verse for you. Philippians 1.21. But as I am, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. He's talking about whether he's going to die from Roman imprisonment to, to eventual um, uh, execution. Will I die from this imprisonment? But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, from living or dying, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. It's better what's coming than what you have now. And we think, well, now is it. And if I die, well, that's the worst. 
It is, but it's not. It is because death is horrible, but it's, it's not because it's Christ. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Not in a soul sleep, not in a dirt nap, in the presence of Christ. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. When you're wondering about what, the future and you're worried about this life, go to Philippians chapter 1. Start at verse 21, which I just did, and, and think through what he's saying about the val- relative value of this life versus what's coming. And then always remember that it's God's timing, and that really matters. The timing matters. It's on him for when you get to make that transition. We don't adopt some sort of weird suicide pact that it's better be with Christ, so let's go. That's crazy. But Paul is saying you have much to look forward to. And when you die, when you're dying, listen, when you're dying, it's the worst. Your body's failing and you don't know life without this body. All you know is that this is coming to an end and you have no experience other than in this body. Awashka trips notwithstanding, you should avoid these things. You don't know anything in this life without this body. It's great fear. It's very fearful. But God tells you through the Apostle Paul, it's better be with Christ. It's better be out of this body with him. It's a faith claim. And when you're dying, my prayer for you is that that is more real to you every day until you're with your Savior. Have you seen people die in fear? I have. It is a horror. It is a horror that the person you know is a believer, but they're not thinking about what what Paul tells us, for example, in this passage, whether at home or whether absent. But that's the topic. By the way, that's the topic every day too. Today, oh, what's today? It's raining today. If you have a rainy day, oh, it's a wasted day. Better not think that way. Sometimes do, do yourself a favor and multiply 85 times 365. It's a small number. You don't have many days. But hey, when they're over, absent from the body and present with the Lord, that's where we're headed. And it's something that we should look forward to. And believers, when I'm thinking this way, I'm thinking this way. And when I'm not, when I'm focused on the things of this, this, of this earth, this life, this flesh, I don't think that way. The courage comes from the word of God and thinking through what he said. Therefore, we have as our, also have as our ambition with a view toward service, whether at home or whether absent, to be you arrestos to him, to be well-pleasing to him. Arrestos is to please or to be pleasing when you throw an EU on the front of a word, it means it's good or well. And that's why they translate it well-pleasing. You could translate it pleasing, or you could translate it well-pleasing. It's an emphasizer. It's a stronger way to say pleasing. I really want to be pleasing to him. And that is the personal relationship component of every mechanical moment of your life. Your life is not mechanical. It's personal, but there are mechanics to life. We have to get up, we have to do nutrition, we have to do exercise, we have to do labor, we have to, we have to rest, right? We have to prepare, we have to plan, you have to set things up, you have to do all the things of life. There are mechanics. But the mechanics of life are lived in personal relationship with God so that I'm getting up, and as I get up, I want to be pleasing to Him. It's toward Him, it's personal with God. That's the idea, and that's, that's why we're in the Word so much. You know, you could be in the Word and not develop a personal relationship with God. You could study about it all you want. My constant prayer for you is that when we assemble, we're not coming to know about God. We're coming to know God. And this phase is the intake phase. This is the prep phase. This is the the charge up phase. This is the gas up, the fuel up, fueling up phase. But there's coming what's next. And you got to live it. You got to do it. You got to think it. But we want to be well-pleasing to him. It's personal. It's always personal. Well, God doesn't care what you put on your sandwich. He doesn't care if you use mustard or mayo. So what about that? As you're putting your sandwich together, are you walking with him? Or are you completely separated from him because you're worried about the fight that you're having or you're, you're sinful in some other way and you're not thinking and you're not relating to him? It's not about the mustard or the mayo. It's about, is this time his? Am I his? Am I walking with him? And that's a much better way to think about it. You guys can fight about it in the parking lot about mustard or mayo. In verse 10, for this is a tough one to translate. It's going to come out pretty ragged in the, in the English here, but... Um, 
My English Bible cleans it up a lot. They always do. I mean, they, Christians have to read this after all. So we, we clean it up. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. It says it's necessary. It's a, it's a circumlocution. It's necessary to appear that we appear, all of us. For it's necessary for all of us to appear before the Bema. B-E-M-A. That A to, we usually say A for that, for that letter E in Greek. Today, modern Greek, they say, they say E. They say Bema. And so you might hear people say Bema. I say Bema because I, I was taught it or asked me in pronunciation. So I say Bema. You say Bema. I've heard other people say Bema. Um, but, but, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. It means judgment seat. It's the place where the, the mayor or the, the magistrate of the town would take up a seat and then hold court and render an evaluation or a judgment on whatever is being presented. And we have these Bema, these, these judgment seats in various archaeological excavations in the Roman world, and he's talking to those in Corinth, so over in Greece, and this is something that was done. I mean, just, it just means the town where the, the magistrate makes the decisions. But it would be like if you go to the judge, and there he is at the, what do they call it, the bench. It's the same idea. For all of us appear before the bench or the, 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 or the bar or the judgment seat of Christ, the bema of Christ. And the reason you're going to do that is hina, so that each one may or will, the purpose in the subjunctive, will receive back the things through the body For what things he has done, the things by means of the body. For what things he's done, we had a we had a misplaced, misplaced space. A misplaced space. Come on, y'all. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> so that each will receive back the things by means of the body. He, he he breaks into the middle of this thing and says, "By means of the body, you're in this body serving. That's what it's for." most valuable physical thing you have besides people, the most valuable physical thing you have besides people is your own body. What things he has done, whether good or bad, whether well-pleasing to him or not. So, so much of um, popular critical education is to try to figure out whether we can decide what God thinks is good if it's really good. But a, a, a real Western education would be to take what God says is good and figure out how you could be about that. That's really what you want to do. What does God say, and how can I be fitting my life into that? What does God want? And he's very clear what he wants for you. We're in a building project, not this old meeting house. The building project is the body of Christ, and he wants you to grow spiritually within your giftedness as a believer to be part of that construction. It's really clear. And you might do that selling shrimp. If you're from the South, I guess. You might do that uh, as a construction person. You might do that in any occupation. What you want to say is we ask the children, what do you want to do for, for your life? What do you want to do with your life? They immediately think of occupation. Well, I want to be a computer programmer. Or I want to be, you know, I want to run a landscape business. Or whatever they think they want to do. Well, the first thing to say is I want to be pleasing to God in his building project. And by the way, for my bread, for what I do for a living, I think I'll run a landscape company. And you do it for God with him as your boss. And next time, we'll talk about God as the awesome boss that he is in Ephesians 5 and uh, Colossians chapter 3. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We close with the words of life for anyone that may be in the hearing of my voice. We're streaming this out there. We're recording it. We're archiving it. Maybe you're hearing this on a message later. Maybe you're here in person today and you have never understood the clear message of life. I have bad news for you. You are a sinner and you need a savior and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's like the person that's trapped in a well and there's no way to climb out. The water's, climbing, the water's rising. The water level in the well is rising and you have no way to get out of this thing. Oh, and you can't swim. A lot of the presentations you'll hear are things that you should do for God in order to receive eternal life. But the commandment Jesus gives is to believe, to believe on him, to trust in him. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your house, is how Paul summarizes it. And that means that Jesus died for my sins. He paid the penalty that my sins require. And the penalty was the wrath of God. And he suffered for my sins on the cross. And I'm trusting in him as my savior. What you do about your sin is irrelevant when you consider what Jesus has done. And there are lots of people that don't think they're sinners. That's a problem. You need a savior. And Jesus died for your sins on the cross. Well, what you're saying is that I can just do anything. Wait, wait, wait. We have all transgressed God's righteousness, which is an infinite righteousness. And so the transgression of any sin of ours is a transgression of infinite goodness. And so, yes, your sins that shock you, Jesus paid for those. The sins that you don't commit that other people do commit, Jesus paid for those. He died for your sins on the cross. And what you need to do about that is trust in him. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Father, thank you for the eternal life of your Son that you've given us through him, for the work of your Spirit in our hearts through your Word, that we know you better by considering the arrangement Jesus presents of glory. Father, we want that glory, and we know that that is to dedicate, to devote everything you've given us back to your energy, to your work, to your effort. Father, let us be those people. And so bring people to us that need to hear of Christ and give us wisdom and maturity and all that we need to share him with them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.